0: On this episode of the RAISE podcast, I speak with Evertrue 40 Under 40 winner, John Grice. John is the director of the annual fund at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. John has been at the forefront of developing new strategies and tactics to improve mid-level philanthropic outcomes by better personalizing the giving experience. We discuss how John launched one of the Advancement Sector's first digital gift officer programs. We also learn why John sees diversity and inclusion as a critical priority in this sector. And on a personal note, it's the Evertrue team's special honor to take at least partial credit for John meeting his now wife. But we'll save that story for the podcast. It's time for The Raise podcast featuring John Nice Grice. Here we go. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Rays Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome my guest, John Grice. There's just something about you every time we catch up, such positivity, good energy. I'm thrilled for you to share that uh, with the Rays audience uh, today, but but I really do look forward to catching
1: up. Well, I, I am happy to be here. And while <laughs> some may say I'm the nicest man in advance, and I think I guess that's a good moniker to to carry along. I I do get really excited about the work we get to do. And each day, especially at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, we are changing the world through the people that are able to be in labs, to study in classrooms, who will go on to do great things. So it's easy to be nice when you get to do such awesome work like that. Love it.
0: Uh, I share that enthusiasm for the sector and and look forward to learning more about your journey. And we oftentimes like to start by asking our guests just to provide a little bit about uh, their their trajectory in this sector. When did you first even hear the word advancement? Uh, when did you think about this sector as, as a possible career path? I imagine, like most of us, it's when we were young children uh, and we immediately started to aspire uh, for careers in the <laughs> higher ed advancement sector. Is that you?
1: <laughs> That's not quite me, but, it, but I'm close to that. Uh, both my parents worked in Higher education at Kansas State University. Uh, I thought I was going to go somewhere else, but just got lured to become a Wildcat. So I enrolled in a political science program at Kansas State, and absolutely loved grew up my time there. In the little yeah. apple, I grew up in the little apple. Uh, if you if you don't know where that is, I encourage you to look it up. It's uh, the happiest place on earth, uh, one of my favorite places, and. Uh, you know, during my time at Kansas State, I, I got involved in so many different things. And fortunately, one of the programs I got involved in was their student foundation, which has gone on to do incredible things like the K-State Prowl campaign, where they help students who are in dire financial need. And that first dose of philanthropy, whether I knew it or not at the time, was really what got me hooked. I spent about four years um, serving along some of my peers that helped me to run that campaign, and then I decided that I wanted to take an internship at the foundation in their annual giving program and absolutely loved it. I at one point in time thought I wanted to pursue a career in law, but once I got to doing the work of advancement, I thought, you know, this could maybe become a real thing that I could jump into and a couple days before I graduated. Uh, My mentor and friend, uh, Minnie Wesselman, actually uh, offered me my first job uh, to work there full-time in their annual giving team, and it was a small but mighty program, um, but truly gave me this incredible opportunity to diversify my experiences from direct mail, email, program development, student life fundraising, uh, where I got to do a little bit of everything, and eventually um, left there a couple years later, went to Oklahoma State and got to start leading their student and young alumni programs. Uh, we had this kind of feeling back then about five years ago that, you know, crowdfunding is this thing that's kind of picking up steam. Seems like it'd be a good fit for young alumni. John, why don't you take that and John, hold that be thought. the one that I, does it.
0: I definitely want to dive into that uh, transition um, from K-State to Oklahoma State, which as a lifelong wildcat could not have been a decision <laughs> lately. Um, however, you mentioned, I mean, as far as career paths go, you have had a more uh, streamlined, almost predestined path into advancement from being surrounded by parents as educators, from attending the hometown university in Manhattan, uh, to joining the student foundation, to then that segueing into um, uh, you know, an early position with, with significant career growth in, amount, in, in a short amount of time we often hear from people, well, I stumbled into advancement. It sounds almost like the opposite for you, which I want to dig into more later, but tell me a little bit about just the student foundation, because that is not an an expression we've heard very often. And I'm curious um, if you could just give the quick overview on what is a student foundation? How did you get involved? And why was it so high impact for you on a personal level? And then I'd love to know, does Wisconsin have an equivalent student foundation or is that something that you've, You've, you've experienced elsewhere? Or is it somewhat unique to, uh, to Kansas State?
1: Yeah, so the, a student foundation is really a manifestation of a foundation or alumni association's beliefs within the student body. And uh, they can oftentimes act as a extension of the mission of those organizations to the student body. And it's a peer-to-peer um, way of communicating the importance of philanthropy. Um, Students can be magnets um, towards each other. They're attracted to what they are passionate about and what they see their peers are passionate about. So we designed these student philanthropy programs uh, so that students have the opportunity to speak into um, how they want to give and where they want to give to, to provide leadership opportunities where you actually have freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors, and a couple super seniors working on these campaigns where they're creating the action plans they're asking their peers for funds, and they're remedying a need that's on campus. For us at Kansas State, it was that students weren't able to stay at the university because of unforeseen financial circumstances. That, for me, was a motivator that caused me to want to work long nights, show up at early meetings, uh, and really do the work of advancement before I actually knew that what it actually was.
0: Do you have so, any examples on that journey where you feel like down to the individual student, if it weren't for the work of that student foundation, that person couldn't have stayed at school. I mean, did you get down to that level or was it more general as far as the impact We did.
1: It, we did. So the way that we designed the student foundation and that K-State Proud campaign was that every Wednesday, um, four students in that campaign um, sat down with the director of financial aid at the university and reviewed testimonials and needs requests um, for emergency aid and made decisions that were um, showing that they were good stewards of the funds they had, but that were also compassionate um, opportunities where they could say, we believe in you, we wanna give you another chance um, to stay here at this university and your peers are gonna invest in you. So we heard stories of students who, um, their apartment burned down and they just needed first and last month's rent because that's how short they were on it. Or a non-traditional student whose transmission fell out and they didn't have the funds to be able to replace that so they could take their kid to school before they go to school. Uh, These stories were heartbreaking and also inspiring because you see many students that were working multiple jobs. And the data that we know is that stress impacts your ability to perform academically. So if we could alleviate that, then it would make a huge difference. And I recall a moment where I was a student asking people to just give $10 to support the K-State Proud campaign so that we could keep other students in the classroom. And a student came up to me and said, hey, here's 20 bucks. Last year, I received one of these awards. I thought I was going to have to leave the university. And because of this campaign, I was, I'm able to be here today and make this gift back. What can I do to help? And That's that, to me, set forth a path that I knew that I need to be in advancement.
0: I love it, man. That, that is a powerful story. And, and I think at the same time, I have to ask, at a time, and you were operating in, in, a, in an environment in Kansas that is well known where there's been a reduction in state funding of public higher education over time, um, I imagine, you know, pressures around student loan crisis that, that are felt uh, nationally, but at the same time, you were able to counter a lot of those trends and still make the case for philanthropy, and I'm just curious um, how much pushback did you get or, or how difficult was it uh, to, to help people understand at a time when you are taking out student loans, when you're already feeling potentially stretched or your family is, that there's still an opportunity to do more and to make a positive impact by investing in your peers?
1: It's a very real objection. Did anybody give you, a,
0: I mean, anybody really give you a hard time or get upset or, you know, how did you balance kind of Feeling such, um, s- such commitment to the mission and seeing those impact stories had to be incredibly inspiring, but for somebody who maybe was more skeptical, um, did anybody really give you a hard time during that, that student uh, philanthropy journey?
1: Sure. People always had reasons that it wasn't a best at their time to make that type of gift, um, but I think you just have to meet people's empathy. Um, if you can say that I see you, I understand that makes sense, uh, then I think that it warms the conversation. Um, sometimes people just want to be heard in that, and it's okay if not everyone can give. You know, in that moment, if you're so financially stressed that, you know, maybe you might want to think about nominating yourself or having a friend nominate you for one of these awards. So for us, it was always really helpful for um, us to think empathetically about people and to think about how. The entirety of the K-State family is coming together to help out students in need. And it also somewhat positions us to make a very cause-based argument that isn't necessarily just saying, we want you to give because this is your alma mater and you should give to it. Instead, it leads us to say, here's a challenge that faces the person next to you in class. If you look left, if you look right, one of these people may not be here tomorrow because of these type of things. That's a really powerful thing that regardless of what you're going through that you might be able to to depart with a little bit to help that person stay.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a classic example of the importance of marrying impact with the ask and the tension that so many of you and your peers feel around unrestricted versus Mm -hmm. restricted. And even if something's uh, unrestricted, how can we help quantify the impact of of a dollar value uh, relative to the pros and cons of actually restricting? Maybe we can come back to that. So You have this really powerful experience. You're basically, um, you know, accelerating leadership on campus in a student context. You get the role, thanks to uh, Mindy Wesselman in the annual giving space, uh, spend a few good years at K-State, and then decide to take the leap to Stillwater, (laughs) Oklahoma, which not many can do when they're born and bred Kansas State Wildcats. Tell me about that decision.
1: You know, Kansas State is a land grant institution and Oklahoma State is as well. Um, they're both institutions that believe in affordability and accessibility. Uh, and there are a lot of parallels that actually come down to them. They're, I mean, there's, these are the truest of college towns where the university drives the economy. Yeah. Um, game day is a big thing. Instead of purple, it was orange. Instead of limestone, it was brick. Uh, the The students are all incredibly passionate and excited to be there. And I found that I connected really well at Oklahoma State um, because of that passion, um, because of the types of students that are going to pursue our education that will change their lives so that they can then go out and change the world. And I think that's what land-grant institutions provide for people. And it made it a really um, easy transition. I think there are obviously challenges with, you know, moving away from Manhattan and, you know, going out and when K-State plays Oklahoma State, we always, always have to pick a color to wear that day. But... You know, it was uh, it was an incredible five years there.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say fierce rivals with incredibly aligned missions.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if they're too fierce. I mean, game these are like two of the nicest fan bases out there. I mean, well, maybe they that will play helps, helps the explain
0: John <laughs> Nice rights.
1: You're like, I got to go somewhere that, nice. <laughs> that might explain it. Maybe we figured it all out.
0: We met. During your time at Oklahoma State, as we were kind of getting, uh, starting to mature as as an organization at Evertrue, and I just remember you being one of the first people who really um, embraced, I mean, take the, the, the products and, and software aside, but just philosophically, this idea that we can better understand our constituency, leveraging data in a way that allows us to personalize the ask, maybe not the same way you were able to personalize it in a one-to-one basis as a student leader at K-State, but to try to get at that same ability to really understand what makes somebody tick and help make the case for uh, the work of of the, in this case, Oklahoma State Foundation. So I don't remember the first time that we got connected or you know, maybe you got exposure to um, you know, to ever true through some of our training and coaching. But I'm curious from your perspective, what it was like as you were trying to develop new approaches to something that's been done for a really long time and how that dovetailed into um, us being connected.
1: I think that any time, particularly in higher education, um, where we're faced with something new, I think we have to really take that newness seriously and believe that it has this power that we have to sort of diffuse for our stakeholders in the business that we do every day. What I mean by that is that at Oklahoma State, it was imperative that I sought buy-in from all of our partners to introduce this new approach for how we can learn about affinity um, for within our audiences. Historically, we've always been in higher education, probably generally has Oftentimes, defined affinity based off where someone's previously already given, which is sometimes driven by what they've been asked to give to before, or what they graduated on behalf of. When I started to learn about Evertrue and got invited to this conversation at um, at the OSU Foundation, it really opened my eyes that hey, people are raising their hands every day, uh, multiple times a day, uh, and telling us what they care about, and we're looking them in the face and ignoring that type of engagement. So we have to think a little bit differently. Um, so I oftentimes like to try to um, gain that buy-in by making it very real to that person that we're working with um, to talk to them about the ways that they're engaging outside of this office and that that is setting an expectation that we now have to meet as an Office of Higher Education and Advancement. So the opportunity to be a part of Evertrue and get to learn about the product and then get to Build it into how we did business at Oklahoma State um, was an incredible opportunity, but I think that it definitely had to um, make it very real and break down that newness for people so that they really understood it in plain terms.
0: Now I appreciate that and, and I think you know for us as well, so much of what we were um, uh, suggesting at that time was still very unproven, and we needed to find partners who were willing to test things and I think that was one of my favorite Parts of our um, early collaborations, not just with you, but the whole local <laughs> foundation, was how do we find some like very specific areas where we know there's missed opportunities to just test does this new idea, this new affinity-based approach, work or not? And how can we have really measurable results? So I'm curious if you can take us back to some of those um, maybe specific examples that could be generalizable for our audience that helped um, not only go from an exciting concept, but to some real evidence.
1: Yeah, so I'll talk about one specifically, and that's our, that's our marching band. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite projects because they're just such a um, passionate group of people that are really good at putting on a halftime performance and training young people to master um, the arts. And what they were struggling at the time was to be able to, to raise funds to support that mission. So what we had historically always done for them, they had sent out the same mail piece. And I don't just mean like they always sent out mail pieces; they sent out the exact same mail piece every year. And what you would see in that is that you saw that there was attrition. People stopped giving every year, so they had this huge leaky bucket problem. Um, what we decided was that this was a great test case to see if there's an opportunity to try something different. Um, so of course we decided, you know, let's, this, this needs to be multi-channel. Um, that's the first solution. But even we ask ourselves, are, do we have the right people in this list? Are we asking those people that truly are passionate about this? Or are we just asking people who maybe gave 10 years ago or happened to be in the band at one point in time? We don't know their experience. Uh, it seemed like a big miss for us. So as a pilot project with EverTrue, we decided to let's track the band's social media engagement. Uh, let's learn who is really excited about the band, and then let's start to um, plug them into our solicitation plan. And that took a lot of work on the front end because you can't just start and then send them something to the mail. So we warmed the audience up for about three months um, with videos and content about the band uh, and trying to be very targeted in that philanthropy makes this possible. Can uh, I ask you you that, to those When you say yeah. we,
0: who is the we there? Because at that point you're really in an annual giving kind of appeals marketing role you weren't necessarily in charge of band-oriented content. So who did you have to get on board to uh, partner with you to help with that, that warming process?
1: Yeah, so we had to work with our social media managers. They were incredibly valuable at being able to make sure that we can take the great work the band does and get it to our audience. That also meant that we needed to talk to the band and try to make it very simple for them Uh, because they need to focus their efforts on, you know, helping out. And there are 300 students in the marching band at Oklahoma State. That needs to be the band director's focus. Uh, But to make it very simple, like, hey, you guys are taking videos. You're taking pictures. Just drop them in this box link, and we'll upload them to Facebook. Um, We'll share that message. Uh, So we made it very simple, but we definitely had a couple of different stakeholders in the game to get that message out.
0: And so you partner with the band to get really authentic Frontline content. You partner with social media team who owns the channels to help uh, do the distribution. And then what happens?
1: And then we let it sit. We have these leads that are out there, uh, and we watch and we let people start to engage. Um, sometimes you know we may have a post that we need to we need to boost, but you know a lot of times we're looking for that just that one magic post that that moment where uh, it's the week before school starts. Um, The band is in the heat of Oklahoma. Um, The drum line are wearing their black shirts. And you start to see people posting about how they remember when they were in band. And it was the week before school. And they were in the heat. And that brings back a lot of good memories. And they think about, you see posts about people who, uh, their child is in the drum line. And they used to be in the drum line. Uh, You see people that are season ticket holders. And they are excited to get to the next halftime. And then we pull that list of people that have engaged with us. Uh, we make sure that these are, um, these are the best people to include in a solicitation. And then we started email marketing um, to those people. We did more targeted um, ads. We set up a crowdfunding page so that people could see the progress of the band. And the, most importantly, the band could keep telling their story. Because after that week before homecoming, they would have their first practices. Uh, they have their halftime show. Uh, They have the fifth quarter. These are all great moments where they can tell stories to keep that audience engaged and to even grow that audience. So that leaky bucket problem that we once had of people who just slowly stopped giving through direct mail, but we kept sending things to them. We now felt uh, that we were acquiring more people, that this was either their first gift to the band or this the first time they've been asked to the band uh, and that we were retaining people as well and just growing that and diversifying that audience. So the appeal ended up um, multiplying by, I think 140% um, was our growth. And, uh, you know, we don't need to raise two times the amount of money. I'll take just, you know, small incremental growth year over year. Uh, but we were really happy that the marching band could raise more money in that first year. We're just thinking about, um, how they build their audiences for these and how they listen actively to people that are raising their hand every day saying, I care about this thing. And yet historically we've always been the the male pieces for, the same thing that they've not been given to for, for years and on years. So that's kind of opened us up to this new world uh, where we can think differently about how we define affinity and how we can um, start to market things ahead of time to really let people start to warm themselves up to the ask.
0: I love it. It's such a fun example. And I personally saw some of those videos of people holding... What looked to be like two hundred pound tubas in one hundred and fifty yeah. degree heat, <laughs> or you know slightly exaggerating, but uh, but it was really cool content, and you can get why anybody that feels um, you know connectivity to that group would be so fired up about it. but I think all too often what has happened historically is we find something that resonates, we share it, people engage, and nothing happens and so I think this was an awesome example where you 're able to really come up with a with an integrated plan from content creation and engagement through qualification and affinity-based scoring all the way down to the appeals, which weren't just crowdfunding, it was leveraging offline direct mail, uh, but also being able to do some digital work as well. And, and I think at the same time, John, um, what you just described, you know, there are a lot of marching bands in the, uh, in the country that are probably trying to raise money for equipment or uniforms or travel or whatnot who aren't doing what you just said why
1: not? I think that there's oftentimes this debate and advancement about whose donors are these people. And it's, it just kind of, this is where it like warms my blood. I just, because the donor donor intent is something we shouldn't be honoring. And um, oftentimes we don't present options to people. Uh, So I think that you know, the reason why a lot of these marching bands or, you know, engineers without borders or other groups across campus that maybe don't fit into the academic unit degree granting um, institution, uh, I think that oftentimes they, they fight for a seat at the table uh, when they have some of the most powerful stories of student experiences and bring a lot of value to people um, in their daily lives before and after graduation. So I think that we have to give them an opportunity to Um, let them start to build affinity and let people self-identify as, hey, this is something I'm passionate about. And I think that if we do that, and certainly the way that philanthropy is going, I think that there's room for them at the table as well as all the academic units.
0: Yeah, John Morris from K-State, who I know you know, describes that as Mm outside-in fundraising. Instead of starting with what do we need, what do we have, let's start with what they care about and then find a way to meet them there. So I think it's fair to say John Grice is nice, unless you don't honor donor intent then okay um so you have this neat experience at oklahoma state what i love about that team is they just seem like they really empowered you to try new things that you know i'm sure you had some uh inertia and and challenges that are are inevitable as part of um more conservative higher institutions uh, but you were able really to test a lot of new things and that has propelled you to uh, really a leadership role at a, at a young age. You were just honored uh, as part of Evertrue's 40 yeah. Under 40 Advancement Professionals, really emerging leaders who are, uh, we think, representative of the next generation of um, innovation and, and broader leadership in this, in this sector. So congratulations on that. But um, I won't ask you how old you are, but, but I am curious <laughs> what, it, what it was like to even um, have the confidence to throw your hat in the ring at a relatively early point in your career for a leadership position in the annual fund at a uh, at a Big Ten institution like Wisconsin?
1: I think that there's just the incredible power of mentorship and having surrounding yourself with people that um, believe in you and encourage you. Um, since I was a freshman in college, I've, I've always had a mentor um, and several mentors um, to that end. And I think that my mentors have always um, encouraged me to go seek experiences to um to try to broaden my my worldview and to to try big things so when i had the opportunity to come check out university of wisconsin madison i did not know what i was getting myself into i got on the plane and uh landed in madison and i heard my first wisconsin accent ever <laughs> and I was can you can you just give just me thinking, your best
0: wisconsin accent
1: uh let's see uh well old oh, do or uh, that's not very good. I haven't oh, quite mastered good. it, but,
0: that but works. sometimes,
1: you know, sometimes people say, uh, instead of John, you know, your lag donors, they'll that. say your leg donors. How's <laughs> Edison? Yeah, that's great right there. <laughs> so it was a huge culture shock, but, uh, but, you know, I wanted to just see how someone else did it. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to go check out Oklahoma State. Uh, and then when I got here, I saw that there was uh, so much opportunity um, and my hiring manager at the time was someone who, um, who did it differently. Um, we have I've always historically reported within a development side of the organization. Um, now I sit within the marketing division. And that is, that is a change for me um, in how the annual giving team is structured. But at a time when we're um, thinking about agile fundraising and being very responsive to the world as it happens at lightning speed, I felt like, being an annual giving team inside a marketing division is exactly where we need it to be. Uh, so I wanted to come take this opportunity just to, to try it out and fortunately got the role and quickly transitioned uh, my life to, to Madison. And it's been uh, it's been a very fast paced um, year. It's actually just about a year since I moved to Madison.
0: That's amazing. It seems like yesterday uh, from where I sit. So you mentioned mentorship. Who are some of the people who have really supported you, and what advice would you have to your counterparts who maybe don't feel like they have a strong mentor yet? Um, how do you, you know, do you walk up to somebody and say, "Will you be my mentor?" Probably not, but at some point, you know, is it is it formal? Is it informal? Who are some of the people, and how have those relationships developed and supported
1: you? Yeah, I think I probably have uh, three mentors that maybe started off as formal and maybe moved to a little bit more informal as I've become more established in my career, Um, but always people that I can go call upon at any time. Uh, My first mentor was Mindy Wexelman. She had great conversations with me about how to be a professional and to navigate um, as a new professional. I was an intern, and everyone knew me as the intern who was, you know, K-State proud and interned in the office, and then I was there for 40 hours a week and their colleague at that point in time. She was really good at giving me honest feedback about how I can position myself with the new organization. She taught me a lot about uh, consistency. Um, I can run at 150% some days, but there will be days if I do that that I'll be 25%. So I, she taught me a lot about consistency, uh, and that helped my growth significantly. Uh, My other mentors have been, you know, my most recent boss, uh, Amanda Davis down at Oklahoma State. Uh, Certainly, um, we were a great team at being able to um, get things done. And that's when I probably first learned about how a manager can sit alongside their team and to help by playing a very specific role. And her role oftentimes was removing obstacles. Um, She's had our team together for four or five years together, and we grew all individually and her role alongside us was to help make sure we continue to grow. And our programs grew as well. And she did that by removing obstacles for us. And that allowed me to feel like I had ownership and to uh, to continue to invest in that program. And I think that from a mentorship standpoint, she provided me uh, that new perspective of how to be a leader um, by just taking a role that walks alongside your team. And, you know, my third and final mentor is, uh, is Damien Williams. Uh, He is has been in the higher education advancement um, field for a very long time. Uh, We met at Kansas State and um, he's always provided me a lot of guidance uh, when it comes to being a um, being a diverse professional in the field of advancement Uh, and he keeps it real with me all the time. And I always enjoy uh, getting his perspective and sometimes he talks honestly to me and I don't really want to hear it. We're very different people. Uh, and how we, uh, how we just live our lives. And, uh, he's, um, he's so much energy. I'm way more subdued. Uh, there are just, there are lots of different ways where you're like, how do these two <laughs> get along? But, uh, I think that that type of honesty that he always provides me keeps me grounded. Uh, and I think that if you're looking for a mentor, you feel like there's a gap in me being able to grow. Uh, I would encourage you to think about who are the people that you're, that are around you right now that you aspire. To, um, to be like or you feel like you can learn, even if it's just a part of them. You don't have to be just like them, but maybe there's a thing about them that you can learn from. All my mentors are very different, and I borrow from different parts of them and how they lead um, to formulate my leadership philosophy. And I do think that um, while directly asking someone might seem like a lot um, to just step out and say, hey, I'd like you to be my mentor. But I think that once you provide that introduction, you um, provide value to them. Uh, I think there is a moment where you do say, you know, I would love to like pick your brain from time to time. Like, would that be okay with you? And uh, there's some level of formalizing it that I think does help out at least at the very early stage um, because you want to set expectations so, so they're clear and people are equally invested in this. And I think that if you can establish that type of relationship, then it'll be valuable for both people.
0: So when you made that leap to Wisconsin, when you got that opportunity, uh, what was it like sharing that news with Mindy, Amanda, and Damien?
1: You know, with um, Mindy and I go way back, and uh, there were a lot of challenges early on in my career that, um, that she helped me through. Um, and she had a number of challenges as well that we bonded not only as a team, but like a family, an annual given team we had departures and I had to fill roles and I was elevated beyond my capacity probably pretty early on, but that's because she had um, faith in me. So when I get good news like that, I mean, I, I talk to Mindy and say, you know, when moments like this happen, uh, they make me think of um, what you allowed me to do and what you, how you believed in me. And I know that because you did that, that that made a big difference. Uh, And I share similar things with Amanda uh, and Damien because that, um, that I hope that I hope they hear that and know that because they invested in me, that I was able to have this opportunity. You know, as I say these things, there are other people as well, that maybe aren't formal mentors or family, friends or partners that, you know, have made a big difference. And uh, I think about those people. And I thought about them all when I got the opportunity to come to the University of Wisconsin, Madison.
0: That's very cool. So let's talk about Madison. You made the move. You've learned to speak Wisconsin, or at least understand it. And um, what are you excited about right now?
1: Right now, I'm excited about the, the, the breakneck speed of growth that we've had. Uh, when, I, when I got here, we were um, wrapping up our end-of-year campaign uh, and in the midst of preparing for our first-ever day of giving. What was exciting about that is that we were able to stand up a day of giving for the first time and raise $1.8 million, 5,000 gifts, and it had involved over 140 different areas where people gave to. Uh, It was a big moment of energy and excitement for UW Madison, and it engaged people not only from a philanthropic giving standpoint, but also we had more than 600,000 impressions on social media. So it showed people um, the power of these moments. Uh, and it allowed us to think more cr- critically and creatively about the future of our annual giving shop. The Day of Giving certainly um, raised new donors and brought in um, re- and re-engaged donors as well. Um, but it also opened up tons of matching gifts, people giving at the leadership annual giving level. Uh, so we knew that uh, from that day that there's a, we could do a little bit more refinement for how we want to position our department across the organization and to the institution. We took a lot of goodwill um, that came from the first ever day of giving. And we um, were asked like, what's next? And I told our, uh, our team and our leadership, uh, I think that we have a leadership annual giving challenge. I think that we have gotten really good at knowing everything about the one, top 1% of our donor base. And I think that we've gotten really good at running these multi-channel campaigns that um, are mass marketing. Uh, I think that we need significant improvement with our leadership annual giving band of donors. Because when I look at the data, I see that we have a retention challenge. And if we can't retain donors that are giving between $1,000 and $25,000 on an annual basis, then we're gonna see that the the world changing work that University of Wisconsin-Madison does is a lot harder to achieve because we don't have the consistent um, philanthropic giving of those donors. And if we can invest in leadership annual giving, that's gonna move the needle faster than anything else we do.
0: And you are making those investments. You've you've analyzed the data, you've made that case. Maybe some of this was uh, anticipated during your hiring process, but uh, you've got some really exciting new positions and a level of growth in the leadership annual giving space that is relatively uncommon. And I'd love to just better understand how you made that case, uh, why you feel like y- you were able to get approval at a time when it can be difficult you know, frankly, to invest in anything other than major gifts, and and so I'd love to love to learn more about the new program you've been building.
1: Yeah, we have talked about um, to our leadership team that there are more than six thousand people that gave on an annual basis in, in calendar year twenty eighteen, um, of one thousand dollars to twenty five thousand dollars. Thirty one hundred of those people um, are unassigned or without plans. So there's a significant number of people that are giving thousands of dollars and no one is thinking about what happens next with them. We also have challenges at our organization of recruiting talented fundraisers that are ready to go uh, in these director of development positions. So I position to our university, um, our leadership and also campus, that we can help fix the retention challenge by investing in leadership annual giving, Um, sure up the revenue that's churning every year um, for our donors by hiring leadership and giving officers. This can also serve as a farm team for our major gift pipeline, where we can start to um, equip our um, new staff with the skill set that will make them successful and run a whole lot faster um, than someone that comes from outside our organization or has um, skills that are similar to that of frontline fundraising. We we shared that with our leadership and, you know, I, I initially asked for two people. Uh, and our president said, why not eight? <laughs> so we ended landed on five, and we welcomed them in as a cohort. So we they all started on the exact same day, which I think has been one of the better decisions that we've made because they've gone through um, training together. Um, they've built this bond together where they share practices. It allows us to test a lot of data at the same time. We have to remember we're still an annual giving shop, so we're still going to test um, from subject lines to um, different tactics and on the cadence of email, email, phone, or email, phone, thank you, whatever it may be, we're going to try different things. And it also lets them role play together. So they're building each other up as they go. And this is actually the first week where they are going to start asking for gifts and they started about a month ago. So I'm excited by this opportunity and buy-in was certainly made possible because of um, the political capital we built up in the organization, but then also making a case for, you know, we have a retention problem. And that should be our number one priority. And the easiest way to fix that problem is by focusing on leadership and giving and the personalization we can provide for these donors.
0: Yeah. Look, we're obviously believers in that approach. And
1: uh, a lot of people are going to be watching
0: to see how this uh, evolves. And we certainly will um, help uh, publicize lessons learned, good or bad. Right. I mean, yes. this, this may not work. I think it's probably going to work. And, and it sounds like the the value proposition was really, Step one, we've got a retention problem. We can improve the revenue and the the donor retention from that cohort, probably accelerate major gift relationships because these people are basically lobbing in significant gifts Mm -hmm. without personalized outreach. And we can lower our, let's call it, longer-term recruiting costs by uh, really building a talent pipeline. So tell me about the five people you hired. Are they young John Grices? I mean, were you looking (laughs) from the – student population or the recent grad population where do you even start um, for a role like this which is pretty unique in the sector
1: yeah I think that we're gonna have a we picked out the five people what was important to me was that they were a team that all added in different strengths so we have one person who was our first hire she was an internal hire coming from a different part of organization where she has been a support specialist for our major gift officers. She knows our systems. She has a background through another organization in membership marketing. So she gets annual giving. She knows the development side of the organization. She could help be a connector to our development division. We hired a person out of New York City um, who worked for a nonprofit um, in the area. And when I spoke to him, I knew that he was very clear in this communication about impact. And that meant a lot to me because we need to be talking about the impact of people's giving. And I felt like we as institution of higher education could learn a lot from his experience uh, in communicating about impact through that nonprofit. We hired a couple of our uh, Badger call students, our student call center. Um, they can make the ask. They do it every day in the call center. Uh, they know how to build rapport. We just gotta coach them to move away from that time-based call to really deepening a relationship over a longer term uh, time frame and I think they've done a great job of being able to make that transition and it's also a great story for us to tell and that we took a student who was showing up three nights a week to call on our behalf and this is an opportunity for them to think about advancement and we're going to start telling that story way earlier so they can know that hey they can stay in Madison if they like to do that and then we also hired a person from our marketing division um, she um, knows all of our practices of marketing. She can think about those tools. So when I think about how we can leverage the tools of the marketing division to enhance personalization and deepen relationships, I believe that people like these five, especially with the last and the ability to know our marketing division, are going to make an incredible team. And that's why we hired them as a cohort. So not anything like me, actually. Uh, so I'm just excited about how different they are. And as we continue to hire. Um, for these positions long term, we'll be thinking about what value they add to that team.
0: Love it. Cannot wait to see how this plays out. Do they have a name? Do you have like a a brand or or a a mascot that they've embraced yet? Or,
1: you know, we, we don't really, you know, like at first they were just, you know, we have our HR name for like all compensation purposes, but then uh, our president kind of said, like, he just kind of short named them the LAGOs, Leadership Annual Giving Officers, and that's kind of just what stuck. Um, we are in deep conversations about what they call themselves publicly because they're going to be very digital in nature. We're talking right. about being digital and yeah. how we connect to people because that's the expectation in 2019. So whether they're going to be a digital gift officer, digital development officer, uh, I just saw that um, Oregon State released their the role, which um, we've talked a little bit about the role and. They call right. them their, uh, I think, digital experience officers or Daughter, donor experience officer.
0: experience officer, yeah.
1: Yeah, DXOs. Like DxOs. That's, I gotta call them up and say, "Hey, can I can we use it?" <laughs> a lot of back and forth
0: on that, but you know, we're uh, we are uh, supportive of, of that taking off for sure, and um, and we'll definitely be profiling some of their efforts as well. Lots of alignment with what you've uh, described. So. I think, I think Lagos is a good start, but, but there's, uh, there's some, there's gotta be a way to work in Bucky or a badger or I don't know something. Yeah. I mean, Hey,
1: if you have ideas, please send them my right. way. I, I, I need them. If
0: you have an idea for what John's new five person team should be called. Uh, we will take any suggestions and make sure they, they come his way. Um, John, I wanna talk a little bit just about stepping back from what is a really exciting leadership opportunity for you personally, an opportunity to introduce new digital first approaches, not just from a mass marketing perspective, but really from a one-to-one outreach perspective with this new team that you've built. Um, But I'm curious when you think about the status quo in the sector and the case circuit or or the big 10 or big 12 development conference circuit, where do you feel like the sector is overinvesting, where where inertia is just too powerful, uh, and then at the same time, where do you feel like the sector is underinvesting, where inertia is too powerful? I, I'd love your take on those two topics.
1: You know, I think that our our sector, there's this huge debate about um, the value of phonathon uh, long term, and you have institutions that are killing their phone programs and walking away from it. Uh, what I feel like we are doing is that we are over investing in areas that aren't phone. I mean, if you stack up, I would encourage advanced professionals to take a look at their budgets and think about how much you're spending on phone, how much you're spending on mail, and how much you're spending on digital. And to think about, you know, we're giving a lot of attention to phone, but we spend way more print marketing overall. And we could be thinking about cutting a smaller percentage of that and investing that in digital and that might bring us a greater return that is also measurable because we send out all these magazines and we do all these appeals and a lot of times we have trouble um, measuring the impact of them um, towards our bottom line. But we know we can do it really well with phone and we know that digital provides us tons of metrics as well. Um, So I think that we are over investing in some of our other areas besides digital and, and also phone. I think that phone has a place. We just have to redefine how we use it. And if that means that we're out of the business of trying to call everyone, uh, then we need to really think about what added value we can provide for people. Uh, so we just need to think about it a little bit differently. When it comes to... Under- yeah, I mean,
0: just on that note, I think that, that we're, we're too quick to attack a channel. And I think the, the point is, there can be good mail or really ineffective mail. When you talk about your marching band solicitation, when you're able to identify a pocket of people who love that band, you can absolutely do a print, or omni-channel campaign that marries print plus online plus phone for that matter. But where I think we're really striking out is instead of trying to do phone well, we're just either playing a volume game that's super impersonal, or we're saying that we should stop doing it. Instead of trying to do mail well, we're either sending people untargeted, impersonal uh, communications um, as opposed to trying to do it really well. I mean, look, Airbnb just launched a magazine, like, but they're creating a a magazine for hosts. So their host community can get inspiration and understand stories across the Airbnb host community. And so it can be done really well, but you got to believe that they're taking the uh, analytics from who's receiving those magazines doing A-B tests and then measuring does it change host behavior when you complement digital marketing with uh, print mediums, for example. And I think those are um, where it's, it's, it, it is um, uh, less binary than, than perhaps um, many of the arguments where it, it is, it's not about phone or, or crowdfunding, it's about impersonal phone, impersonal crowdfunding isn't That's good right. for that matter um, and so I think that that's a, an, an excellent point.
1: And I think you're right. One of the things you said was about, you know, we have to be better at analytics. And that's a place where we need to over, like we need to start investing more in at understanding our data. One of the first things I did here was to bring the relationship between annual giving and our data team a lot closer because we can learn a ton from just looking deeply and devoting time into our data. So mm-hmm. we have an analyst on our team now that thinks about digital, that thinks about phone, that thinks about mail, and tries to help us figure out how we can right-size all these programs to get the maximum return and create an incredible donor experience.
0: Love it. Uh, Okay, where are we under-investing?
1: You know, Brent, I think that we're under-investing in diversifying our workforce. I think that the, the field of advancement can go a long ways at thinking about, very critically, how we can recruit and retain diverse professionals into our field. Uh, There are programs that have started to pop up over the past year uh, that help to provide um, diverse students an experience in learning what advancement is and to give them internship opportunities and then to um, let them learn our work and then try to recruit and retain them. Um, We see it in our boards where we set these aggressive goals of being able to diversify our board by 2025, by X percentage. Uh, I think that we need to have equally as aggressive goals when it comes to our workforce and thinking about how we can bring in um, diverse professionals. And when I mean diversity, I don't just mean people that um, that may look like me. Uh, I think that we need to be thinking about people that um, come from different backgrounds that um, that have different experiences um, from each of us because you know when we are trying to tell a story uh, of impact, I think that we are learning now more than ever that that story, does not apply to everyone. And that if we can have a workforce that thinks differently, um, then there will be a much greater value add. And that value can be added from the entry level position all the way up to the C-suite. So uh, we need to be thinking way more about how we can invest there.
0: I think it's an important topic. And even in, uh, you know, frankly, in identifying guests for our podcast, or uh, as we think about ways that we're featuring um, customers, a diversity or lack thereof is something we talk about a lot. Uh, Gender, racial, uh, uh, sexual orientation, you name it. it It is a real issue. And I would be curious to get your take. Let's just say, fast forward, and now you're the CEO of a foundation or you're a senior vice president of advancement. Do you have a philosophy or a framework that you're developing? Or when you think about um, being prescriptive about goal setting on this topic. Are there, are there ideas you have or ideas that you would share with leaders who may be wrestling with this, but frankly, um, aren't sure where to turn for, for advice?
1: Yeah, I think that when thinking about where to turn for advice, you can look just like we do in our day-to-day of deciding how we're going to market annual giving to the masses. We can look to other industries that are doing it much faster than we are. Um, E-commerce being a great way where boards have decided that they will be 50-50 male and female at their leadership table. Uh, And that decision has led for them to increase their profits because they have better perspective that's in the room. Um, you can see even in, uh, in the National Football League, I think that um, the Philadelphia Eagles really went aggressively to try and make sure that they thought critically about who was in their front office and who was on their marketing team. Because when you look at the data, um, a significant portion of NFL fans are female. So we have to think about our audience and let that be a driving motivator and say we need to create a seat at the table for these um, for for everyone. Um, And that type of commitment to diversity is something that I think we have to be outspoken about because I think that that will be attractive um, to people as they're considering where they invest their time and their employment.
0: And this is where I think CASE, for example, with their internship program has done a really good job focusing on diversity. And it's, it's amazing to see how that program has grown. And I feel like even with programs like the one that you're developing right now around leadership annual giving when you think about entry-level talent pipeline programs like that one um i imagine there's an opportunity just as you were able to to transition from student to young professional if we can catch people along the way where we do have a diverse student population that maybe is not always reflective of our Um, org chart, you know, at 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 the typical foundation or advancement shop, maybe there's an opportunity to really be um, thoughtful about uh, diversity, uh, you know, from a talent pipeline perspective in the program that you're that you're building.
1: Yeah, I would encourage advancement leaders to go look at your call center, like go there, spend a little bit of time, get to know those students. Because I can almost bet that they are a lot more diverse than a lot of the other pools that we're drawing from. So we have to be thinking a lot about that. And I hope that with our new, uh, DXO, DGO, logo um, that we're able to, yep, yeah, we got a good vote. Uh, I really hope that this will be a great pipeline for us and that we'll be able to demonstrate to the organization that we're very serious about, um, diversifying our workforce.
0: Love it. All right, John, as we start to conclude here, uh, you have a bad day, you have a good day. What, you, you always have such positivity. Where do you find inspiration in your work? I mean, you talked a lot about uh, some of the student impact stories you had early in your career. I imagine that's still a big part of it, but, um, but you know, who do you turn to for
1: inspiration? Well, I think that uh, when I look for inspiration, I look um, close to home and also really far away, as far away Mars sectors I can get. Um, but close to home, I, I have to look t- to my fiance Amy. Uh, she gives me so much inspiration and encouragement. Uh, she's also in the advancement field. So uh, you can imagine our dinner conversations are filled with conversations about uh, appeals and performance <laughs> and uh, strategies. And she's absolutely brilliant. So I get so much inspiration from, from just talking with her and picking her brain and us having these intellectually challenging conversations, which she when sounds- we sit down...
0: She sounds incredible. Where, where'd you meet her, John?
1: I, uh, I met her in Oklahoma, and we actually had this great opportunity to, um, to meet and talk about um, a product that we both use at our different universities um, over lunch, uh, and she was an, an EverTree user as well um, down at Oklahoma Christian University.
0: This is a huge reveal, folks. John met his fiance, Amy. <laughs> thanks to the EverTrue blog. So we just gotta get that out there. We are so excited for them. Uh, Our mission at EverTrue is to build relationships in pursuit of a better world. And John and Amy having built their relationship has no doubt made our world and their worlds and your world better. So uh, (laughs) we are so excited to be a small part of that. And no matter how our entrepreneurial journey uh, 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 ends or doesn't, we can look back fondly on helping uh, connect John and Amy.
1: This is me blushing by the way.
0: (laughs) Uh, So that's great. We just had to get that out there uh, for everyone. Thanks for, for bearing with us, but in all seriousness, close to home, far away. uh, What else, what else keeps you, keeps you ticking?
1: You know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at my inbox on email every day. I mean, there are incredibly smart people out there marketing for anything from Airbnbs to, you know, credit cards to um to excursions. And I think they're doing it really interestingly. So I, I'm always looking to like pick my brain and say, okay, what's working elsewhere? Um, uh, because a lot of times that's the that's the experience that people are getting. I can almost promise you that people ride in more Ubers and order more things on Amazon than they make philanthropic gifts. So there must be something working about those experiences or something we can learn from. And if not, we at least have to know that those experiences are defining the expectation of our donor audiences. So in any type of thing that I'm engaging with my life, I'm trying to figure out what can I learn from this to apply to advancement because there are small things and there are big things that we have to consider um, changing because if we don't, then we're really going to fall behind Um, Because there are people that are going to move a lot faster. that are going to figure out without any type of history to hold them back. These uh, more new age nonprofits um, that are doing really cool things across the world and certainly have a seat at the table. Um, We have to be adapting as quick as they're popping up.
0: Right there with you. Couldn't agree more. And, um, and I think, you know, we're constantly trying to learn from those, those for-profit examples while recognizing that there is nuance to selling a mission and impact, but uh, I think everything else uh, is pretty translatable. So as we start to wrap here, John, uh, are you hiring? You've obviously gone through a rapid hiring uh, uh, spurt here, but are you still hiring? Why should somebody take a look at the jobs page uh, for the University
1: of Wisconsin uh, uh, organization? We are always hiring. This this organization is an organization that um, looks to see where need is and is readily able to invest Um, in that need because we believe in our employees and we believe in the difference that they can make for the UW and that that difference will change the world. Uh, What I really love about working at this organization is that we tend to run at brick walls just for that moment when we break through. So we're always interested in taking risks that are calculated um, and yet adventuresome. Uh, And I think that you should work here because that's a really awesome place to be, um, whether it's early or late in your career. So, if you're interested in jumping on board, whether it's in the DxO um, world or elsewhere, then um, we're always interested in talking to you about how University of Wisconsin Madison can be a part of your future um, for a short or long time.
0: Love it. Where can people find you, John? How do they how do they stay in touch? LinkedIn is there a better better channel? Yeah,
1: yeah You can try. Uh, you can check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, also, you can find me on Twitter at they call me Grice. Uh, I can't promise that you won't have tons of K-State football posts there or how my fantasy football team is doing, but um, I'm always looking to connect with people. Uh, The network that I've built has certainly helped me get to this point as I get inspiration from Oregon down to Florida, Texas and Oklahoma, all over the world. Um, I'm always looking to learn and connect. So um, please do reach out.
0: And to all of our listeners, I can say with conviction, take John up on the opportunity to connect. He really is this nice all the time unless you don't honor donor intent so just honor donor intent reach out to john he's pushing the sector forward it's been a privilege to be on this journey with him and amy uh and with that we will conclude today's episode john any closing thoughts
1: you know i just hope everyone has a good end of this calendar year this is an exciting place um go try new things Um, the we're not rocket scientists here but we certainly can help those people become that so uh, go change the world I'm excited to be a part of it
0: all right I'm excited too let's go change the world take care everybody cheers cheers